I wanted to start off this morning with uh, just a, a time of prayer and just really a moment of time of, of silence and prayer for those who have been displaced. I know some of us are actually here among us who have been displaced because of the storm. Certainly more of us have been affected because of the storm. And I don't think it's right that we just kind of gloss over really what's happening for a lot of people and what is incredibly tragic for a lot of people and a lot of unknowns of those who have had to drift north or maybe into the mainland of Florida to try and avoid this storm. So with all the unknowns, I thought that we would just go before the Lord and just ask that he would do what only he can do, um, that he would be merciful, that, that he would uh, spare any more lives uh, that has been affected, and maybe that, that he would even be able to calm the storm before it does any more damage than what it already has. So would you pray with me about those things? Father, we just come to you today, and I just thank you, God, that you that you are majestic and you're powerful. And I'm, I'm so thankful, God, that you're, that you're a God who created and yet you continue to engage in our lives. You didn't just, uh, just create as some cosmic force and then leave us to ourselves. God, you're still engaged in the affairs of the world today. Um, and, and Father, I pray that you would just engage in this way, that you would be merciful to those who are are downwind of the storm, God. I pray that you would just be merciful for those who would be affected with the storm surge, Lord God. And I pray that the storm would decrease in size before it does any more damage than what has already been done. And Father, I pray that you would spare lives. Let God, if, if it be your will that there be no lives, um, no more lives lost, God, than what have already been lost due to this storm. I just thank you, God, that you love us. And that even in the midst of this storm and even the storms of life, that you're with us, that your love is evident, um, and you are so welcoming. And just prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, in case you weren't here, this is actually week two of our series, and this is a short series. It'll actually be finishing up today. Um, and the series, of course, is called The Table. And what I talked about last week particularly is how in the Old Testament that God had such a way to where his, he wanted his presence known uh, with the people, uh, with his people at the time, his family at the time. And there was the, this thing called the tabernacle. And they were, as they were wandering through the wilderness, the tabernacle was there. And that was the very dwelling place of the presence of God amongst God's family at the time. And, and that is, was so mind boggling. And then we talked about, I didn't have this table here, but I had a smaller table. I told you the table was getting bigger last week. So um, it did. Voila. Um, don't tell my wife, though, because this was ours from our house. So um, I got some explaining to do when I get home, I think. But, um, but last week, we, there was a smaller table here, and it was very much symbolic of that table that was evident in the Old Testament that was small and portable. And it was, it was there amongst God's people, so they would always know that the presence of God was there. So, and on that table would be 12 loaves of bread, symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel, and that bread would be unleavened, and we're going to see some significance in this passage today, just a little bit, but then um, that bread would be unleavened, and it would be there, and it would be symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel and the way that God provided for them and the way that his presence was among them, and that bread would be changed out every Sabbath day, therefore the bread would never get stale, and it would just always be there as a reminder of how God wanted to um, just be a God who provides and also have a the presence amount, his 
people. So we talked about the table and we said specifically that everybody's welcome at the table and that the table is ever expanding. We're actually going to see that in our passage today. If you have your Bible, open up to Mark 14, please. Um, or a device, phone, whatever. Um, just don't tweet pictures of me. Don't put them on Facebook or Instagram. Um, don't do that to yourself. But whatever you do, you can use a device or a Bible um, to, to get into the Word of God. So we're actually going to see something so significant in Mark 14 that happens around the table. And if you're a church person or, or even not a church person, but you've had limited exposure to church world, this, this passage really or some part of this story is going to be something you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I've heard that before. But what we're going to look at is we're going to look at one kind of glaring thing in this passage. And it's not going to be the thing that is the, the thing that you've probably heard from it. We're going to look at one specific thing and how Jesus addresses his disciples while they're at the table. And we're actually going to see how all of that kind of uh, transpires. But the table uh, is the place where, where they would be gathering and where they would be collaborating to bring um, just some kind of clarity to the situation. But really, uh, I was thinking about this table in particular. This table is three years old. This was a gift to us. Um, it was, I didn't realize how great of a gift it is until everybody oozes and awes over it. Um, there's actually no screws or, or whatever. Or there's metal in it, but it's only because it's like a super old table, like a hundred-year-old heart pine. I don't even know what that means. Somebody told me that was like valuable, and I'm like, awesome. It was a gift to me. Um, but with this table, um, even the, the greater value for me is not the, the dollar signs that it, that it could be traded for, but the value for me is what's happened around this table. And even in the midst of the only three years that we've had this table, there's been some pretty significant and powerful things that have happened around this table. I mean, when my family gets around this table, there's been some, there's been some great like belly laughs around this table. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just like, it's like a belly laugh that it doesn't stop until it hurts, you know? And then you're like, oh, it's just, it's just so good. And we've had so many of those times. We've also had some tears that were shed around this table. Because when you're, when you're doing life with someone, when you're in family with someone, when you're, when you're that closely shaping other people, it's like real life happens around the table. We've had some celebrations. Many of you have eaten around this table or the table that occupied the space before. And you know what this is like. And my wife is, she's so much better at this than I am. She just always invites people to the table, to this table, just as, as a place of comfort and connection. And some of you are gifted in the same way. You just, you can't wait to have somebody come to your table. And I just praise God for you and that gift that you're sharing with the rest of us. But the table is, is it's always been something that's been so powerful. We've always had people come to the table for years and years and years. And before, I didn't even understand the power of the table. But now, I see it in, in a different light because so much real life and shaping has happened around the table. And it's awesome. And yet we've had some celebrations and we've had some very difficult conversations around this table. We've had some, some conversations to where it's like parents speak and kids just listen. They dare not speak. You know what I'm talking about, parents? It's like they just, that comes across. We've had some of those. We've also had some of you at our table. And we've just had some great gospel-saturated conversations. And I just praise God for the table. You see, this table is a place where my family collaborates, where we are to bring one another to be closer to Jesus. 
But really, the table, in a grander sense, is the place where as all of the family of God were to collaborate, to bring one another closer to Jesus. You see, how awesome is it when you know that you have people who are rooting for you to, to tell you and to try and help you to go and, and to be more like Jesus? I, I, that's kind of rhetorical because I think it's stinking awesome. When we have people who are rooting for us so that they're, they know what we're about, that we're gospel people, if you're a gospel person, that you're a Jesus person, and they know that, and they're rooting for you, like just can't wait for you to take the next step of faith. And, and that happens around, around tables like this. This, and it also happens in rows like you're in right now. But both of those things are working in tandem. I thought of just maybe a great way, hopefully it's a good way to kind of illustrate this, of how, how powerful it is to have somebody rooting for us. And anybody know about the game that happened last night? It aired at 7.30, prime time. Anyone? We have, we have a couple people and a bunch of people in denial. Um, I don't know why y'all are afraid of raising your hand in church. It's like it's not that big a deal. Lightning's not going to strike you, I promise, okay? Um, you're good. But in, in the midst of the game, you know, and Georgia played Notre Dame and Georgia won and it was all that. Not, you know, that's, that's pretty cool if you're a Georgia fan and Georgia Tech fans could care less, um, being real. But one of the things I think that, that becomes a great illustration for us to maybe understand the, the power behind people rooting for us, rooting us on towards Jesus is imagine a football game, even if you didn't watch that game, but imagine a football game and imagine you're on the field. I've never personally played football on a field with spectators, okay? Just again, being real. My dad said I was undersized. Probably was, right? So, or else I would walk with a steady limp probably, but Imagine if you were on the field to play and imagine you're there and it's prime time, the lights are on, you're there with a few people and imagine that, that all of that's going on and there's not a single spectator there. There's not one. Just you under the lights, maybe with a, a, a camera broadcasting it, maybe not, but there's no one in the seats. Wouldn't it almost seem pointless When you got a touchdown, nobody would care. When you got sacked, nobody would care. See, I think there's so much power in that, that idea and that visual that you have in your mind. You see, there's something about that that says, no, if we're, if we're playing football, we're on the field to play, we have to have people in the seats rooting for us. And if you are a Jesus person, if you're a follower of his, if you're part of this gospel community, you need people rooting for you, rooting you on towards Jesus. If not, if not, it, it would almost seem like Things just don't make sense to you. It would almost seem like that there's that you're missing something. One thing that I found, found this in my own life, is life is way too messy, way too messy to not have a community rooting you on towards Jesus. Life is way too messy. And with every mess that either we've brought upon ourselves or somebody has brought upon us, there leaves a sting of regret. And, and it's impossible to go through life without some degree of regret. It's impossible. But I think about the power and the sting of regret. And I think, man, life is way too messy 
Way too messy not to have people rooting us on toward Jesus. To somebody who is saying, hey, good job, you did that. Hey, yes, you're serving. Yes, this is what you need to do. Yes, people who are sitting at your table rooting you on toward being the best version of you. And I believe that that is the Jesus version of you. That's the best version of you. And life is way too messy. And, and the sting of regret is way too powerful for us to not have people rooting for us and cheering us on to be more like Jesus. What we're going to see in, in the middle of this, this conversation that Jesus is having around a table in Mark 14, I'll briefly give you the, the context. I'd love to be able to spend more time on it, but it's not really the main idea today. And I could spend all, I, I could spend 30 minutes talking about this solitary thing. So if you want to know more about um, about the feast that it's going to be mentioned here. All of this is actually set out in the Word of God in Acts 12, or excuse me, in Exodus 12. You go to Acts 12, you're going to be lost. It's Exodus 12 is where it is. And this is where God set out this, this certain feast, and it's a way that God wanted His people to remember the way that God prepared a way and planned for a way for His people to get out of, uh, of the Egyptian captivity. And it, was, it happened in such a way, I would love to be able to tell you, it happened in such a way that it was undeniably God. Anybody ever have something in their life and they're like, oh, this was undeniably God. Like this wasn't a person, this wasn't a place, it wasn't my education, it wasn't my degree, it wasn't my kids, it wasn't my boss, it wasn't my job. That isn't what got me through. It was undeniably God. And that's what we see in Exodus 12, that it, God had, had set out this certain feast or festival. It was supposed to last several weeks. And it was to launch with Passover, just a time of celebrating how God delivered his people at the time, delivered them from Egyptian captivity. Let's read together, starting in verse 12, Mark 14. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, that's what I was talking about, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Notice this. Stop there for a moment. Notice how God, um, that Jesus right now is is setting things in motion. He's telling his two disciples exactly what's going to happen before it happens. Only God, right? Only God can, can, can supersede and know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. Just love this. Verse 14. Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher, that's Jesus. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they're prepared the Passover. So now the stage is set. Jesus had, had first sent out these two disciples of his. Of course, we know at this time he had, his, he had his 12. There were other disciples too, but there were 12 that he heavily invested in. He sends out two to go make preparations and plans for them to, to enjoy this, this festival and this time together. And this festival would be a time where the, where the family of God would all gather 
together. That's the point of this. And that's actually what we're going to see here as this continues. So the stage is set. Jesus is, is seeing to it. All of the details are taken care of. And did you know that Jesus knows all the details of your life? That there's no decision that you have made. There's been no regret that you've lived in that Jesus has not known about. That is a powerful thing. We're going to see why in a couple moments. This is what it says in verse 17. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. While they were reclining at the table, eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely not I. Now, I can totally see myself in this situation. I love how when the Bible talks about real life things, it's so easy to put ourselves into it. Can you just imagine just a big, long, sprawling table? Now you have the 12 disciples and Jesus, and he's basically saying that, hey, things are going to go bad, and, and one of you is to blame. And could you not just imagine how it would start on one side of the table, and they would just say, surely not I, surely not I. And I can just, it doesn't even say this in the Bible, but it's just so itched in my mind. I can just see Peter kind of jumping up, throwing his chair back and saying, surely not I. Of course, some things would happen right after this um, that would actually show uh, where, where Peter is after the passage we're studying today. But I could just totally see myself in this situation. And yet I can feel the tension in it too. Is there one by one? Surely not I. Surely not I. Surely not I. Surely not I. Not me, Jesus. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Surely not I. But one would. But one would. Verse 20, it is one of the 12. One who dips bread into the bowl with me, the son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Oh my goodness. To feel that in that room. That he would say that there's, there's someone here who has who has betrayed me and who is betraying me. And he said, and it would be better if that person was not even born. These were real people. These weren't super spiritual people who did not have emotions and feelings and thoughts and brains. While they were eating in verse 22, Jesus took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, take this or take it rather, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the, of the vine until that day when I, drank it, when I drank it anew in the kingdom of God. Then they sung a hymn, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. One of the things about this too, just makes me so thankful I wasn't born in this culture because in their culture, it would be very common for them um, to, to have a big bowl and for them to each dip their hand in it. I'm kind of a germaphobe. So I'm the type of guy, if we go have Mexican, you're having your salsa and I'm having my salsa. Um, if, if your hands get too, if, if your hands 
you know, they, they overreach your chip and touch another chip. I may not even eat from that thing of chips like I'm that guy. And yet in their culture, it's like, I wonder why disease was spread so easy, right? I wonder why the life expectancy was so, so short is because they literally would dip it in. But, but did you see that in the passage? This would be the very thing that would identify the betrayer. This was the very thing that would identify the betrayer. So imagine Jesus' hand in the bowl, Judas' hand in the bowl, and everybody else around the table seeing that in real life. That, I believe, was one of the most powerful moments in all of human history, in that moment. Because what Jesus said in that, would be something that that would not only identify Judas, but it was also something that would then identify this whole group because he was bringing to light something that I want to bring to light to you right now. He was, if you look again at verse 17, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. In this moment, he is, he has, Jesus has already examined the life choice of Judas. He's already examined that, the life and the choice and what Judas had done. And now that examination was was over in a private way. And now it was in a public way. And now all of them would see this. And they would all feel this. And yet there's something that happens when we also gather around the table that we need to, to examine one another's lives. There's something we, we can glean from this. And maybe the, uh, certainly the, the part you've probably heard if you've been around church circles for a while is the significance of the broken body and blood of Jesus. Absolutely, of course, how could you mistake that? It's so powerful. Still an ordinance that we have to do in the church where uh, of the two ordinances we have to do is, is baptize and do the Lord's Supper. Like th- those things obviously are, are so fundamental to the Christian faith. But yet in the midst of this, he is bringing about Judas's life choice and we have to have the same thing. When, when we gather around the table, we have, to, we have to allow people to speak the truth of God's word into our lives. We have to allow people to examine our lives. People who we, we have made this agreement with to say, yes, I, I, I'm allowing you to shape me to become more like Jesus. And then the reciprocal of that is, then they allow you to shape them to be more like Jesus. We have to have that. If not, listen to me, church, if we don't have people who, who then will help examine our life and choices, we will become a runaway train. And let me tell you, that runaway train carries a ton of regret. A ton of regret. And and in its aftermath is destruction of your family, of your marriage, your relationships, and your kids. We have to have people who help to examine our life, that we give them permission And they give us permission to push one another towards Jesus. I cannot even stress that enough. I want to illustrate it in this way. Um, Is there anyone in here who's a NASCAR fan? Anyone, anyone, anyone? There you go. Thank you. I saw your trucker hat and I knew it the whole time. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, I I was a NASCAR fan for, for years and years and years. And one of the things that I thought was really, really cool about NASCAR is... 
uh, not only like the race car itself is pretty epic. I would love to do like the Richard Petty experience, but that experience cost a lot. So therefore, I have only had that experience through watching people, watching other people do it. So um, just to get inside of the cockpit of one of the race cars is amazing. Uh, although I'm not sure my hips could even fit into the, into the seat thing. You can't really move around. And yet one of the things about the race car, other than it being like a rocket ship of speed, is there's very limited visibility within the car. There's like just literally the little rear view mirror and, and their, their range of movement is this far and this far that there's nothing but blind spots like all the way around them almost. So so in those race cars, they rely upon people who are spotters. And a spotter is obviously not someone who's in the car, but a spotter is somebody who's there at the racetrack and who's above the race car. And the spotter's job is to point out all of the blind spots that the driver is, is not able to see because of the limited perspective uh, inside the race car. So the spotter will tell the person in the race car, hey, you're safe to go low or, or you need to go high or, or get off the wall or go down to the apron or beware of the 12 car, beware of the six car, get around the five car. These kinds of things the spotter does. And the spotter, their job is to help the driver not only to win, but to avoid danger. So the spotter then uh, has been given Uh, obviously getting paid, so getting permission from the driver to be the spotter for them to to look upon the car as it's going around the racetrack to make sure that the race race car doesn't go into the wall or doesn't go into another car. And that creates a great example for us because we need that spotter over our life helping us to examine our life and choices so we aren't becoming that, that race car of sorts that runs into the wall. But even more profound than that. We're not talking about race cars, are we? We're talking about lives. And we're talking about every time that we make a choice that is counter to God's choice, it comes with a circumstance and it comes with a crisis. And sometimes it comes with a level of suffering. And every time one of those those three things happens, it brings regret. And wouldn't it be awesome if we had someone that we had given them permission to kind of supersede over our life, that that they would recognize us, spiritually speaking. They would recognize us and that we would give them permission to say, you know what, if you see something about my character that's not right, please tell me. Because I know that every time that I do the thing that I ought not to do, it comes with a regret and I don't want to live a life of regret anymore. I'll put it in a different way. What if someone would have been there to speak to you when you did the thing that you regret the most? What if you would have had just one person? I mean, just one. I think there needs to be a few. But what if you've just had one person who you would have given permission to speak to you when you did the thing that you regret the most? When you said that word and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I ended that marriage and it was all my fault. I can't, I can't point it to the other person anymore. It was me. Maybe for you, you're the prodigal child and maybe you just ran, 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 ran. What if you'd have just had one person to speak the truth of God's word to you in that situation? Oh yeah, and you would have listened. Because more than likely, you did have someone who was speaking the truth of God's word. 
And more than likely, you had people who were trying to cheer you on and root on, rooting, who were rooting for you to spur you to be more like Jesus and trying to encourage you. You just didn't listen. You just didn't listen. So what if someone would have been there to speak to you when you did the thing that you regret the most and you would have listened? Wouldn't it be great to have had that level of regret eliminated from your life? Wouldn't it be great to have that burden lifted off your shoulders? Wouldn't it be great to be free of the very thing that you think has held you back your whole life? We're told that this is what we're supposed to do. In Ephesians 4, starting in verse 13, I want to read through this passage, and verse 15 is actually going to be on the screen, but I want to give you the context, so you just listen for a moment, and then you'll be able to read. But in Ephesians 4, 13, it says this, This will continue until we all come to the unity, unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son, that we are to be mature, that's what we're supposed to be as Christians, to be growing in maturity. It says, So that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. It takes more than us, more than just ourselves to do that. Trust me. Verse 14. And, he's, and Paul says, then we will no longer be immature like children. It's like if, if we start to think differently, we start to live differently, then we won't be becoming immature like children. You see, that's the thing about children. Children need other people to, to talk to them. They need parents to kind of shape them because they, they're Kids are crazy, aren't they? I mean, they just make some decisions, and you're like, who does that? And you're like, my kid does that, you know? Like, that's how it is. Like, where did they get that from? And then you're looking at one another, like, you know exactly where they got that from. But yet, children are immature, and we know that about them, so we help shape their decision-making. That's what we do. We help shape their choices, because as parents... As grandparents, we know that we're helping them to, to shape their life and to make better choices. The Apostle Paul says in this passage, he says, so that we will no longer be immature like children, just living our lives as if we don't have anyone else speaking into us, living our lives as if consequences don't matter, living our lives as if regret really doesn't leave a sting. He says, we won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will be influenced when people, that, excuse me, we will not be influenced when people try and trick us with lies so clever that they sound like the truth. You're going to see how this is so important in the next series. This is the part that's on the screen, verse 15. And he says, no, 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 no. He says, here's what we're going to do so that, so that we're not immature so we don't just give each other a pass, so that we have the opportunity to become the spotters for one another's lives, so that we can help shape one another into making better choices. He says, no, this is what we're going to do. We are going to speak the truth in love. We're going to speak the truth in love. We're, we're as part of the family of God who've already been invited in, into or right, to sit around 
the table of God. We were on the outside and now we're so, it's so awesome that we've received the grace of God. Now we've all been invited in. Now we're in. He says, no, no, no. We're not just going to be immature and we're just not just going to act like we have it all figured out. We're not just going to act like life doesn't have consequences. We're not just going to act like, like, like I can just live my life independent of you. The apostle Paul says, no, no, no. We're building something. And he says, we're building a gospel community. He says, what we're going to do instead of all those other things that we could do, he says, we're going to speak the truth in love. So then we're going to allow people, one person or a few people to, we're going to make an agreement with them to say, you know what? I'm going to allow you to shape me and I, I, I want you, or I want to, to shape you and I want you to shape me. And then when we do that, we're going to allow one another to examine our life and choices so we don't feel the sting of regret. And one great way of doing this is by speaking the truth in love. I want to give you some, some bad news, bad news for some, good news for others. You will only be loved to the extent that you're known. You will only be loved to the extent that you're known. Just, just coming into this room doesn't mean that you're automatically going to be loved. As a matter of fact, this doesn't really pertain to many of you, but maybe a few. I've had the opportunity of being the pastor here for seven years, and I will tell you, I experienced something as a new pastor here that I never experienced as a deacon. I never experienced as, as a, a, just a staff person when I was ministering in Florida. Never experienced it until I got here. Here's the thing that I experienced. People have to let you be their pastor. People have to let you be their pastor. And I'm just going to be real. I'm not picking on anyone in particular. Please know my heart. But this is something the church did not get well. It was not doing well seven years ago. This church was, it was great. We were coming in. We were learning. It was knowledge-based. You come in, and you, as long as you took a good note, as long as you got that thought, you could leave. And, and, and then everything appeared to be good, but it was not good. Because what the church did not have in that situation is the church didn't have the ability to, to be known. And because they were not known, they weren't really loved in the way that, that really the pastoral team wanted to love them. You will only be loved to the extent that you're known. Some of you, you feel the lack of love right now. Maybe it's the, the lack of love of other people, and you can't really point to that to other people. You can't say, well, they did this and they did that. No, no, no. If you're not loved, it's because you're not known. And we have a responsibility to make ourselves known in the community, in a community of faith. You see, when, when you're not here, people should notice and if they don't, it's not because it's somebody else's fault. It's because you haven't made yourself known. You will only be loved to the extent that you're known. And another thing with that, you will only be loved to the extent that you're known. And you'll only be known when you let people into your life. And men, I want to speak to you about this. You see, the ladies get this right. And a lot of times, I'm not saying you do it perfectly, ladies, so don't just like stand up and start, you know, like shouting or whatever. But I mean, we, we all have some work we could do on this, but ladies obviously are more social than men. See, ladies, they just intuitively get this, they get this right where men don't. And yet men hide. Men, I'm talking to you. Men hide. 
But we hide behind the, well, I'm busy, I'm at work, I can't do this, you don't know my life, I've got chores to do. And yet there's, there's something that deceives us into thinking it's okay as long as, as my wife is in these places, as long as my, my wife is, is in rows, as long as my wife is in circles, as long as those things are happening, then I'm okay. And yet you need to know that when you are, 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 you do need the love of others and you can so deceive yourself into thinking that you cannot and you're only going to be loved to the extent that you're known and you have to let people into your life. You have to. You, you don't get a pass on this. As a matter of fact, if you don't get this right, this problem is bigger than you. It's much bigger than you. And the consequences of you getting this, men, the consequences of you getting this wrong have a trickle-down effect to your wife and to your kids because what you do as you lead in the home is not done in a vacuum. It carries a lot of weight. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation, men, where you are the runaway train and you are actually running that train right through your home. Right through your home. And you can have yourself so deceived into, I'm doing okay, as long as my wife's in church, as long as my kids are in church, as long as they're doing all these things, and as long as I'm providing. Providing is a great and wonderful thing, but it's not the only thing. Men, don't so deceive yourself into thinking that you don't need anyone else just because you're men, because you're the rugged individualist, because you have it all figured out, because you weren't born that way, because it's not your disposition. Those are all things that that Satan uses to draw you and others away from the family of God. And it's what we talked about last week around the table. We said that the table is ever expanding. All means all, and it also means men. You will only be loved to the extent that you're known. You're only going to be known to the, to when you let people into your life. That's, that's a hard and difficult truth. There's a, a passage. It's kind of awesome. I actually found this out today, but a passage. I love when God um, also does something like this to where uh, the passage I'm going to put on the screen is Psalm 18, verse 24. This is the same thing that our children's ministry is talking about right now, about making better choices and how we need to allow people to come into, um, in, up to the table. I, I didn't even know that until I literally, until Joy uh, said so earlier today in the rally before the services. And I just love that. And this is what um, Proverbs eighteen twenty four says. There are friends who destroy each other. Friends in a loose way. They're friends who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. And I have, I have found this to be true in my life. Um, I, I, I felt guilty about this whenever I came to faith in Christ because, and I didn't even, I didn't have a Bible verse to put on it. I just had some experience and, and I just didn't know what to do with it. You see, something happens when you commit yourself to, to, to you commit your life to, to Jesus' life and to live his way, then you give up. Sometimes you have to give up old friends. You have to even, even people who are family members who are just, you see, light cannot have fellowship with darkness. And sometimes family lives in that darkness. And I felt that. 
Um, I just, I didn't, I didn't know how to, to kind of handle those feelings because I was drawing to be around the, the community of faith and I always wanted them to be around our table and to be around their table. And yet at the same time, it seemed like my, my natural family was being pushed away. Not that I wanted it to, but it just was kind of happening that way. And you see, in those situations, if you felt anything even close to that, your life has verified this truth. There are friends who just simply destroy each other. But a true friend, a gospel friend, a Jesus-like friend, sticks closer than a brother. Life is too messy not to have a community rooting us on towards Jesus. It's too messy. The stakes are too high. The, the consequences, they, they drift out so much farther than you. And with it comes the sting of regret. Let me tell you some things. And of course, the table last week, I let it out at the end of the, of the service. The table is a, is a fantastic metaphor for, for groups. And make no mistake that this is what this message is about. And this is what I want you to be in. But let me tell you what groups do. See, groups pick you up and they push you forward. You see, when you're in a group, when you're struggling you're suffering, you're enduring hardship, you're not doing so alone. So then a group, a community group, the table that you have, that you have said, you know what, I need you and you need me to, so we can shape one another to move more towards Jesus. Then what, what that group does is then they pick you up and they move you forward to be like Jesus. That's what, the group, that's what a group does. That's, that's really one of the beauties of a group and the ability to celebrate together and do all those things, of course, and, and do all those awesome things, but it's, it's to pick us up when we're down and to move us forward when we feel like stopping. See, because there's going to be times, if it happens to me, I know what happens to you, where we just feel like sitting out, laying out, and stopping. But a group will pick us up and will push us forward. I love this saying, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You show me a person who is even a follower of Jesus and who's not in community, who doesn't have people spotting them in their life, people who they've kind of just given the, just the, the permission to speak some truth, the truth of God's word into their life. And what I'm going to see is a life of wreckage, even as a Christian, because if you show me your friends, I will show you your future. And if you have no friends shaping you to be more like Jesus, that's a lonely and dangerous road. And it leaves a lot of regret. So my advice for you is this. Surround yourselves with people who reflect the glory of Jesus onto you. Surround yourself Bring back the, the idea of the spotter. Surround yourself to see things that you can't see. Maybe, maybe they're, they're outside of your, your direct life choices, so they don't carry the same emotional burden. But what they do see is they see you trying to, to grow to be more like Jesus, and they're rooting you on. Surround yourself with people who reflect the glory of Jesus on to you. And lastly, I just want to, to, to give you this. In this passage, at, at the end of this passage, it, Jesus points to the broken body and the shed blood of the cross. And, it, and Jesus points to that. 
Of course. And I, I'm certainly not wanting to dismiss that. There's so much victory in that. But what he's also saying is he's shaping a covenant community. A, com- a covenant community that has a responsibility one to the other. And a covenant community helps us stay when Satan tries to get us to stray. You see, that's what a covenant community does. It helps us to stay when Satan tries to get us to stray. Have you ever had that thought? I'm not really loved. They don't really need me. I'm not actually a part of them. I bet if, I'm, I, bet if I don't show up, nobody's even going to notice. Whose voice do you think you're listening to? That's right. A covenant community, and that's what Jesus is shaping. That's what you saw last week in Exodus, that there was a covenant community. The Jewish people, the, the, the Israelite community was a covenant community. Now we are part of the family of God. We have a responsibility at just coming to the table. Because a covenant community will help us to stay when Satan whispers, you just need to stray. You're not loved. You're not wanted. You're not needed. You're not valuable. Just leave. You need a covenant community who spots your life that you've given permission to to speak the truth of God's word in such a way that they see areas that are blind to you but but are so evident to them. Wouldn't that be great? if we became that kind of community where we made a decision for Jesus and said, you know what? I'm not going to live this life alone anymore. What if we became that kind of community to where then we maybe even allowed another, another marriage then to shape our marriage, maybe even to mentor us. Maybe we allowed some people to kind of mentor the way that we're parenting our kids Maybe we maybe we could become that kind of community where we we just had we we had effective rows like this, but also we just had circles of people who were just rooting us on to be more like Jesus. I don't know what all of that community would be, but I do know one thing that would identify it. It would have a lot less regret. And that's what I want for you. Honestly, I've I've been a part of groups for the better part of 20 years. I've experienced this. I, I don't have to sell this to myself. I'm a group guy. I can't imagine life without them. I can't imagine not having people who, who help shape me because you know what? I have blind spots. He, Satan, wants us to, to, to have those blind spots and weaknesses. But Christ holds us together invites us to the table, understanding we're on the outside, but he says, the table is open. Welcome home. And everybody is welcome at the table because all means all. Would you pray with me? God, I I know that you have superintended every second of study for these passages that you have superintended every bit of planning that has gone on in groups, that you have superintended every conversation that that we have had about groups. And God, I know that you are 
superintending the affairs of these people and you are superintending the affairs of this church. And Father God, I pray that you, knowing that you, that you are superintending all these things, I'm praying and believing that you are gonna bring more people to the table. The people will, will not live in excuses. The people won't, that they won't believe the lies of the Satan, the lies of Satan to think that, um, that they are not loved, that they're not valuable, that they're not wanted. But God, that, that you said all means all, that everybody is welcome to come to the table. After all, you're the host. You're the host. You decide and you have decided. And God, I pray also in this moment that if there's somebody who's struggling right now, maybe they're, they're struggling and maybe they're, they've kind of heard the gospel a few times and they just, they, they just haven't received it fully. God, I pray that they would just, they would receive the, the hope and the promise and this, that you are the salvation for their sins, just as you, you showed us in this passage that, that you were talking about a broken body and a shed blood and God, you were pointing to the cross. And God, if there's somebody who's on the fence, let them make that choice for you today. Let us celebrate that today. Let us celebrate you today as the community of faith, rooting one another on to be more like you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.